John Ziegler here. Excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 114 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Glad to be back with you after a two-week break. There were two basic reasons for that break. One, we took our annual vacation to Yosemite National Park here in California, which was mostly a success. Uh, we uh, saw uh, lots of deer and bears this year because there were far fewer people. In fact, we saw probably almost as many deer and bear as we did people without masks. That, that was uh, quite startling in Yosemite National Park. But the other reason we've taken a little bit of a break is that we've had a little confusion with regard to the Global Story Network. That has now been rectified. We are good to go through at least uh, the end of the year or the end of U.S. civilization, whichever comes first. Uh, but we are certainly going to be here through the election uh, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, so we're happy about that. The last episode we did before this little break uh, it turned out to be rather prescient because w the subject of that was Trump is toast unless unless he does one thing. I had one escape hatch still remaining in a logical world. Now, obviously, events could change that. It could be a black swan event, an act of God, what have you. But based upon the current circumstances, there was one escape hatch that I still saw for Trump to potentially a pull out and either an election victory or at least come close to an election victory. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened, or at least that's exactly what Trump tried to happen, uh, tried to do. And that was to go all in 
on school opening in the fall. Wow, okay. Boy, that escalated quickly. Yeah, I was ahead of the curve on that one because it's almost as if uh, Trump was listening uh, to the uh, podcast. Correct. Not that he does, but uh, but then not that it took a rocket scientist to figure out that this was a play that he could have made, and if it had gone well, it might have worked in his favor. But that's exactly what has transpired over the last couple of weeks since we did that podcast, episode number 113, and that is that Trump has gone maybe not all in, on school openings because he doesn't seem to have the balls, uh, but he's gone in about as, as far as he possibly can. Uh, but I don't think it's going to work necessarily all that well for him, uh, at least not so far. It could still help him some, depending on how it goes. But what we have learned, and I, even I underestimated this, is that there is a reverse Midas effect going on with Donald Trump. Correct. Uh, that basically everything he touches, instead of turning to gold, it, uh, it reverses and it turns to crap. And, and the left, uh, in, in a way that I think is not beneficial to children, not beneficial to the country or to society, has uh, made it very clear that they will now do anything that is the opposite of what Donald Trump wants to have happen. Now, uh, at, at, at a time, this made sense. And this was probably based in some semblance of logic. Now it appears to be all based in emotion, that it's almost Pavlovian, that it's just a reaction. They may not even realize that they're doing it, but schools are clearly the most obvious and dramatic example of this phenomenon. Uh, I really do believe, I truly believe that if Donald Trump had said, you know what, I'm against schools opening, I don't think teachers can do this. And frankly, I'm happy that schools are going to be closed because they're indoctrinating our kids with a left-wing agenda. If he had said all of that, I truly believe that the majority of academia, of the teachers' unions, of the state governors, even the blue state governors, would have probably said, you know what, screw you, we're opening schools, damn it. I truly believe that. They might not even realize it. They may not even understand what they're doing because it's partially subconscious. But the evidence is overwhelming that since Trump came all out for schools opening, that liberals have shifted their position on schools in a negative direction, meaning they were either in favor of schools opening or at least opening in some sort of hybrid fashion. And now they're against it. There are all sorts of examples of this. The Pediatrics Association, almost immediately after Trump came out in favor of schools, shifted their position, walked back their position that had been in favor of opening schools with obviously a lot of protections and restrictions, what have you. But because they're afraid of being seen as pro-Trump, they immediately walked it back and, and that support uh, dried up very, very quickly for, uh, for schools opening. We've seen it with regard to, to states and with school districts themselves. Uh, right here in California, right in fact in the district where my eight-year-old daughter that you've heard on previous podcasts uh, is supposed to attend school. They shifted their position dramatically and not coincidentally right after Donald Trump came out in favor of opening schools nationwide. And let's let's examine how that happened. So here's here's how it went down. Trump goes in, all in on schools opening Los Angeles, the second largest school district in the country. Very, 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 very liberal. 
they decide we are going all remote learning. Let's be clear what remote learning is. It's not school. Correct. It's not even close to school. It's not even it's not even the stratosphere of school. It's just an excuse. It's just in a butt covering situation. It has absolutely. In fact, in my view, it's probably more negative than having no school whatsoever. There's no learning that goes on at all. And and I'll get more into that shortly. But Los Angeles comes out and says, uh -uh, we're not doing it. Uh, then Orange County, which is supposedly still a, a semi-conservative county, uh, although lately has shifted far more to the left, at least in congressional uh, uh, races in 2018, their school board came out and said, we're going full-on school. This is just south of Los Angeles. We're going full-on five days a week, no masks. Well, at that point, the governor of California had to step in. Because not because he's trying to protect kids, not because he doesn't really I don't know what he really thinks, but I doubt it has anything to do with science because the science doesn't back this up. But from a political standpoint, he had to step in and protect the teachers union because the teachers union doesn't want to do this for some semi valid reasons and largely not valid reasons, in my opinion. But now Orange County is a problem because if Orange County opens up full bore five days a week, no masks and nothing bad happens, it's going to make everybody else, specifically Los Angeles, look like a bunch of assholes. And so that needs to be shut down. So the governor, in my opinion, completely exceeding his authority, decided to, to take the 32 counties in California that are on the so-called watch list for the virus, uh, where he has emergency powers, and says, uh, okay, uh, you're done. No school, everything online. My school district in my county, in Ventura County, just north of Los Angeles, decided to fold just before the governor did, which was brilliant on their part, uh, and go from what they said was going to be a hybrid of in-school and not in-school to totally online. Totally online, which was obviously a reaction both to Los Angeles and uh, to Trump going all in on schools. The same thing, by the way, has happened in the D.C. area where they said they were going to go back in some regard. And now, post-Trump going all in on schools, they have shifted in the opposite direction. Now, they're all going to claim, oh, it's because of the, the virus spiking. Baloney. We, there's nothing that has changed with regard to what we know about kids in schools. Nothing. Uh, here in California, you know how many kids we've had under the age of 18 die of the coronavirus since this began? Zero. Correct. Zero. Absolutely, positively zero. We have had more people in California, more kids under the age of 18 in California, die in helicopter accidents on the way to basketball games, three, in the Kobe Bryant tragedy, than we have had die of the coronavirus. Now, obviously, there is the concern of, okay, if, even if kids aren't dying, they obviously can get this, especially the, the older kids. What about them transmitting this to the adults? Clearly a concern. There's no actual evidence that it has happened in a significant way. None. The, the only place that, that I know of that's had a problem worldwide here is Israel. Israel tried to open up schools. They got a bunch of cases. But to my knowledge, and I've looked into this, there's no indication anyone has died because of this. Now, the, the notion that somehow we cannot open schools unless we ensure that no one anywhere is going to die is completely, uh, utterly... It's just flat-out ridiculous. Uh, that's not the rules, folks. That, that's not the way... That's not the standard. That's not the way this is supposed to work. Do you know how many kids 
and or teachers die on the way uh, to and from school every year, it's got to be in the hundreds, if not more than that, maybe the thousands. It, that, that, that's just the nature of life, unfortunately. There's a lot of elements of life that suck. There's a lot of bad things that happen in life. You can't shut down life, especially something as important as school, out of a fear of a risk that is incredibly small from a statistical standpoint. But everyone's been scared out of their minds, and now the politics are involved. And the reverse Midas effect of Trump is clear-cut. Now, there is a possibility, uh, at least theoretical, that this could work in Trump's favor. Because this is one of those rare situations where it's obvious, it could not be more clear-cut, that it is the left, that it is the Democrats who are shutting down schools. Could it still work in Trump's favor? In some ways, that he might actually benefit from this politically more by not getting what he wants than if he actually got what he wanted. That's theoretically possible. Where if... Let's say that schools only really open in in very conservative areas of the country. They're all completely shut down in liberal areas. And in the conservative areas, nothing bad happens. And in the liberal areas, it's a crap show. The parents hate it. The teachers hate it. No one's learning anything. People can't go back to work because they got to worry about their kids uh, not being in school. That is theoretically possible. And it still might be Trump's last logical uh, policy-based hope, barring some sort of act of God or black swan event that I've already referenced to win this election. However, there's some problems with that. And that is that the left totally controls the narrative in this country. They now control everything. They control the media. They control academia. They control the teachers unions. They control medicine. They control science. They control every element uh, of uh, social media, uh, Hollywood. So they get to control the narrative. And so the factual basis would have to be so overwhelmingly obvious that everybody could see it. And even then, the media is going to be so invested and teachers are going to be so invested in not having been wrong about this that I still don't believe that it's going to work very much in Trump's favor. Right now, the polling is actually, if you believe the polling on this, and I don't fully uh, because I think that the polling is very biased on a subject like this. But the polling, that the little polling that we have so far indicates that there is not an overwhelming sentiment among parents for reopening schools. Now, I know for sure that there is a pocket of very, very passionate people who think that this is the dumbest thing we've ever done among a lot of very dumb things to not reopen schools. And, and they might be swing voters, but they're not a majority. Now, why are they not a majority? Frankly, it's because the entire country has been scared out of their minds by four or five months of absurd media coverage that has been remarkably uh, biased and basically seems to be uh, with the motivation of, of scaring the crap out of everybody into submission. And so w when people are scared, they don't think properly. And you know, I'm someone who, who believes that the media has lost a lot of its influence over the years because they've lost a lot of credibility. But there's one area uh, where the media still has enormous power, 
And that is in stories that humans have never really experienced before, in situations that are new, in situations where we don't have our own personal experiences to combat the bias or the inaccuracies of what we are being told in the media. And so when you're dealing with something like this where no one has ever dealt with it before, you're in brand new ground, you're in uncharted territory, the media has enormous power because people don't have anything to combat it with. They don't have that much power, really, when it comes down to, say, a presidential election, because almost everybody now knows most of the media is in favor of the Democratic candidate and against the Republican candidate. And, you know, unless you're a very young person, we all have our own experiences to go, OK, wait a minute, I'm not going to really put much stock into that. But we've never dealt with this before. And so when you're not getting all the information, and that's one of the ways that bias works, they keep the information away from you so you can't come to your own conclusions. They keep away from you the fact that the actual death rate is not only way, way lower than we told it, told we were told it was going to be, but it is incredibly low. It is higher than the flu, but not all that much higher than the flu, maybe three, five times as much as the flu, for which we do absolutely nothing except to get a vaccine. And that, by the way, this is without a vaccine uh, so far uh, with the coronavirus. And so not only is the death rate low, but among children, it's basically non-existent. But we're not being told that. And, and the, we're also not really being told at all about the lack of evidence of transmission from kids, especially young kids, to adults. That really is the key statistic in all of this. If people understood how little evidence we have that kids, especially young kids, transmit this to adults, the science that the left likes to talk about so much would in no way, shape or form, in any way possible, justify the total closing of schools, which is going to be catastrophic in so many different ways, not just in the short run, but in the long run. I mean, this is this is a long term catastrophic situation for the lessons that are and will not be taught all. I mean, my gosh, think about it. this is the tip of the iceberg. But think about how we are teaching an entire generation of school kids, how little importance education has, how incredibly small the the burden is for canceling school, not just on a daily basis. I, I used to freak out when our school district would, would routinely cancel school because of a fire that wasn't even in our area and and because of you know poor supposedly poor air quality. And I thought, my God, that is a terrible precedent that we are setting. And it has turned out to be unfortunately dead on. Because now we're not just canceling school for a couple of days because of some smoke. We're, we're canceling school uh, from the beginning, and we have no idea when and if we might even end, uh, end up opening. And it, let's be clear, the burden now to reopen is exceedingly high, exceedingly high uh, and very nebulous. And, you know, frankly, I think it's political. I, mean, I, I, I think the standard's going to change. It sounds like a joke, and for, it started as a joke. But I think uh, November 4th, I think the standards are going to change, assuming Joe Biden beats Donald Trump. And that's pathetic. That is absolutely pathetic that we're playing with kids' lives and our entire education system uh, based upon standards that are based largely, if not totally, in politics. And unfortunately, Trump is too impotent to be able to do anything about this. He's lost so much credibility 
because of his own selfishness and his own stupidity, that he has no personal credibility with the public for them to trust him to say, no, we ought to go back to school full time. But this is going to be a, a huge, huge issue that is, is going to have ramifications for many years to come. And it's not being the decision is not being made based in science, as the left likes to claim. It's being based in politics. Now, in the effort to try to do something here in California, a lawsuit has been filed against our Governor Newsom, or as my eight-year-old daughter Grace refers to him, Governor Poosom. And, uh, and I'm actually part of the lawsuit. There are nine plaintiffs, at least when the lawsuit was filed yesterday. I am one of the nine plaintiffs on behalf of my daughter. I have no idea how successful this lawsuit is going to be. Uh, to me, it's a principled matter. Somebody's got to fight back against this. And uh, you know, it's an uphill climb for sure because all the courts we're going to face, probably right up until the Supreme Court, assuming would ever get that far, are going to be very pro-democratic. And Newsom knows this. And, and, and this is really the thing we've learned most in the last four months is that how the left controls, especially in certain areas of the country, the left controls everything, even the courts. I mean, we've been told by the Trump fans, oh, the courts now, especially on the federal level, the federal courts now, they're all been packed with uh, conservatives and Trump supporters, and this we're going to be benefiting from this for generation to come. Bullshit. There's not been one court ruling during this entire fiasco that is has has helped in any way that has provided any relief from this tyranny uh, of leftist fascism that has overtaken the country. Not one. Uh, Bill Barr, you know, talked a good game for about five minutes and nothing happened. Nothing. And so the, the courts have been useless. And so I don't hold a, a lot of hope, uh, but I'm supportive of this. That's why I'm a plaintiff, uh, because a line has got to be drawn in the sand. Something has got to be done to push back against this. And uh, this is the only avenue we possibly have. So I'll keep you updated on what happens uh, with that lawsuit that was filed yesterday. And I am, as I said, a plaintiff against uh, Governor Newsom uh, in his effort to keep uh, schools in most, not all. That's actually part of the legal argument. He's only doing this in part of California, not all of California. And that that might uh, theoretically be a, a weakness in his legal argument. But we have seen the remarkable power of the media, the remarkable power of the teachers union, uh, all of whom are now against Trump and, frankly, I believe, against the education of children, all because it fits their political agenda. And I'm not even sure they even fully understand what they're doing. I do believe a lot of this is I would like to believe a lot of this is subconscious, but it's just as real. It is just as real. And, and you know, when Trump came out in favor of schools reopening, man, the left circled the wagons in a huge way. They threw everything they had in going in the opposite direction. Everybody, all hands on deck. We've got to stop this. And it could, it could end up backfiring. I, I have lost a lot of faith in this whole idea that the left overplaying their hand was going to benefit Donald Trump. I, I've said many, many times in this podcast, the left will always, 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 always overplay their hand. And they're doing it in a huge way in so many different aspects of this entire situation. The schools are absolutely one of them. But I'm no longer confident that they're actually going to be forced to pay uh, 
because Trump is so impotent, has so lost his way, so has no idea what he's doing, has so little credibility with the majority of the American people, uh, and Biden is being so protected by the media that I'm not sure it's possible for them to overplay their hand with regard to this election. And that's really scary because that's the only fear they ever have. If they, I mean, the only fear some of them actually have on the left is, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't go too far here. We might lose this election. Right now, there's no threat of that, at least not logically. Uh, now, that could change. You know, Trump is, is clearly on a path to losing, but he's not far from getting back in the ball game if something dramatic were to happen. And then maybe at that point, some people on the left might go, whoa, 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 hold everything. Let's knock this off at least for a few months. But this, the school situation is going to be interesting because uh, I, I, I'm very confident, very confident that if there were schools opened in a proper fashion, while there would be cases, and this, herein lies why the left has such an advantage, they have set the rules in a way that are absurd. They have set the rules in such a way that if kids get the coronavirus or test positive for the coronavirus, somehow this is a disaster. That's not a disaster. That's called reality. The reality is that kids are by and large almost universally not dramatically impacted by this. But that's going to be the standard. It's the same thing's happening in sports, which is also ridiculous. The standard for reopening sports now is no cases. No cases? No cases of coronavirus. Something that there's, a, there's evidence now that up to 30% of the population has had in some way, shape, or form. And you're going to claim that you can't have any cases to, to open up uh, sporting events? You cannot be serious. For something that for young, healthy people has shown every indication of not being lethal? And in most cases, not even being that big of a deal, that, that is really tough to overcome. That's the easiest way to win an argument is when you set the rules to such an absurd degree in your advantage that you can't lose. You can't lose. And that's what's happened here with regard to this virus. And Trump has to take some blame for that. Trump has no effective virus narrative. For a couple of reasons. One, because he was wrong twice. That's that's the biggest part of this equation. He want, he was he diminished it far too much at the beginning, saying it's going to go away. We've got this under control. He used the word hoax. All of that uh, was obviously, in retrospect, catastrophically wrong, and probably motivated by his hope that this wasn't going to derail his re-election, which was actually looking pretty good at the time. So he was wrong at the beginning, way too dismissive. Then, in my opinion, he flipped in the other direction way too hard. He went from this being nothing to now I'm a wartime president, and this is the biggest challenge we've ever faced in the history of our country. And he bought totally in to Dr. Anthony Fauci, and he bought totally in to the idea that if we don't do anything, we're going to have 2 million plus deaths, and that was wrong too. He was wrong at the beginning when he didn't take it seriously enough, then he overreacted. The, the right response was somewhere in the middle. But now because the data is getting worse with regard to cases, 
and a little bit with regard to the death rate. I'll get to that momentarily, uh, but nowhere near as much as the, the case data and, and a little bit of the hospitalization, although the hospitalization issue has been by the media, grossly exaggerated the problems there. We keep hearing all the time, hospitals are about to be overwhelmed, about to be overwhelmed, about to be overwhelmed, yet it never actually happens. Never actually happens. Doesn't mean you don't worry about it, don't, you're not careful about it, but it's never, it's never actually happened. Even in New York, it never actually happened. But Trump doesn't have a narrative that can fit because the data doesn't allow it right now. He can't say we won because clearly we have not won. It's not over yet. It may not even be close to be over yet. And his ego will not allow him to admit he was wrong. Correct. That's probably the biggest problem he has. The biggest problem he has is he, even if the virus were to get under control, he can't even take that narrative because he would have to admit he got duped. When he made his second stance, when he went to wartime president, when he went to, this is the biggest thing ever, we've got to shut everything down, I, I, Dr. Fauci is, is, is God, and we're going to do whatever he says, I'm going to hand over my presidency to Dr. Fauci, he cannot admit that that was a mistake, because his ego will not allow it. So he has no path. He has no narrative that makes any sense, and it's made worse by the fact that the data, which he's tried to fight back against, and he gets mocked about it. He gets mocked for saying, well, we have so many cases because we're testing so much. There's some truth to that. Like a lot of what Trump says, there's some truth to it, but it's obviously not the only explanation. The, the cases have exploded more than I expected. When I said uh, a couple months ago that we were not going to have a massive increase in deaths, I was not expecting 70,000 cases a day. Now, most of those cases are going to be harmless, maybe even asymptomatic. But when you have 70,000 a day, eventually that's going to result in some deaths. And so I wrote a column for Mediate at the beginning of the month. You can find it at our, our uh, 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 Twitter feed at individual one pod saying that the media is overemphasizing the new case numbers and not looking enough at the death rate. And I said at the time, look, the death rate might go up a little bit, but it's nowhere near. It's not going to go anywhere near what it was back in March or April when we actually had fewer cases nationwide. We were in the 30, 35,000 range then, and we were getting uh, over 2000 deaths a day. At the time I wrote the column, we were almost 500, just barely over 500 deaths a day, which can we be clear for a second? And this has really been maybe the point on which I have been most misinterpreted with regard to my view of the virus. I have never said this was anything close to a hoax, that this was nothing, this is not serious. It obviously is. But we lost complete and total perspective. I mean, the idea that we are shutting down schools in a situation where uh, a couple weeks ago, as a country of 327 million people, we were losing a little over 500 people a day, average age of at least 80? What? What? You cannot be serious. That doesn't even come close. Doesn't even come close to the threshold of what it would need to shut down life to this degree. 
It's not even close. And I guess one of the most amazing things about this whole story that I will, till the day I die, I will be just blown away by is that we never even had a conversation as a country about what the standard ought to be. Nobody ever even had that conversation. What was the com- what, 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 what is the standard for shutting down all of life? To me, in a country of 327 million people, you better be losing, or lo- at least fearful of losing, millions of people, and they ought to be young people, not people who are in nursing homes uh, or about to die or have lived already well past life expectancy. I'm sorry. You know what? Life sometimes requires tough decisions. This whole situation sucks. But that doesn't mean you make it worse because you're afraid to make gutsy decisions. We have we have decided to to completely screw ourselves for a generation in order to avoid a little bit of short-term pain. And it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And people think, oh, you're callous, John. You don't care about old people. Bullshit. Bullshit. My father's 80. I got two in-laws around 80. I love them very much. They would actually agree with me on this 100%. The, the reality is this whole thing was never going to reach the threshold needed to warrant this kind of reaction. And you know what proves it? Sweden proves it. Since the last time we did a podcast, the, the virus in Sweden is virtually non-existent now. At last check, as of yesterday, their seven-day average for deaths in Sweden, three. Three deaths a day in Sweden. Their cases had even gone up recently like ours, and then now they've gone down again. This after no government restrictions. Now, they locked themselves down voluntarily. That's fine. They had economic repercussions. That's fine. They made some major mistakes with regard to nursing homes. That's terrible. It's unfortunate. Their average age of death, by the way, is 86, according to their statistics. So, yes, they've had a lot more deaths than their neighbors, not nearly as many as other European countries like Italy and Spain and the U.K. but uh, and a couple others. But uh, the reality is they had no government lockdown, and they blow apart, blow apart the fundamental primary myth that drove all of this and that clearly scared the daylights out of Donald Trump and forced him into giving up his presidency to Dr. Fauci. And that is this notion that we were going to have 2 million plus people die in America if we didn't do anything. That was that was the projection that motivated everything. That was what forced Trump to give up his balls. I guarantee he was scared out of his mind, understandably so, by that kind of projection. And he was told by people he trusted and probably wrongfully so that that was real. That, that we have to lock everything down. Otherwise, we're going to lose 2 million plus people. Now, you can argue whether or not 2 million plus people, does that meet the threshold? It's close. But I'll tell you what doesn't meet the threshold. Saving a few thousand, and I don't know what the number is. No one does. And it's certainly not in the millions. We didn't save 2 million people by doing what we did. Not even close. And Sweden proves that. Because they didn't have any government lockdown and the virus went through the country, and now it appears to be virtually gone. And life is normal, and a, you know, a half a year from now or a year from now, Sweden is going to be in a hell of a lot better position in all likelihood uh, than we're going to be. 
because of the way they chose to do this, and they didn't create any horrendous precedents along the way. So I mean, no, no country did this perfectly. No, nothing's a panacea, but Sweden blows apart the whole myth of if we don't lock down, two million plus people are going to die. That was never going to happen. And we now know, now we know that from the fatality statistics, not just the daily death rate, but now that we have more knowledge about the, the asymptomatic cases, uh, we don't know 100% what exactly the death rate is, but it is not that much higher than the flu, especially for younger people. For younger people, it's basically the same, even maybe even less than it is for the flu. And so I'm one of these people that really doesn't like being lied to. And when I get lied to, I get angry and I don't trust the people that lie to me ever again. And there have been numerous lies that we've been told in this whole thing. We were lied to that the 2 million plus death thing. That was a lie. We were lied to. This is just a few weeks to flatten the curve. That was bullshit. The few weeks to flatten the curve has now turned into we control your lives until we get a magical vaccine that may or may not ever happen. That was bullshit. The whole idea this was all about science was blown apart when the, the Black Lives Matter protests were allowed to go unmitigated. In fact, applauded by the medical and science community. And I believe that they have had a significant role in this spike in cases over the last month or so. And there's also the, the flip-flop, as I've already mentioned, on schools. Not about science. It's about politics. So when you flip-flop for no scientific reason, I'm sorry, you're not a scientist anymore. You're a politician. And then there's this issue of masks. Oh, my gosh. Masks are all anyone talks about in America these days. And the mask Nazis have completely won this debate in a blowout. Uh, even Donald Trump has now surrendered. The lone warrior, he calls himself. The lone warrior. Correct. Is now posting pictures on Twitter of him proudly wearing a mask as being a patriot. What? What? you got to be kidding me. It's just flat out ridiculous. Now, now, let's be clear about masks. And this is another area where I get uh, uh, grossly misinterpreted. You want to wear a mask? Fine. I don't think personally that it, it does anything. Uh, the, the science doesn't indicate that it does. There's all sorts of studies. In fact, I just tweeted one this morning uh, from the CDC in May indicating there's no indication that masks do anything for the general public in either direction when it comes to the, uh, the flu virus, which is not fundamentally different from the coronavirus. And, and that's just one of many. The science before this all happened was always at best ambiguous about masks. But you want to wear a mask? Fine. Where I draw the line, you don't have the government mandate that I must wear a mask, otherwise I'm going to be punished. And my biggest problems there are, okay, if they can do that, if the government can do that to you, what can't they do? And number two, when does this end? Tell me when this ends. Tell me on what basis this ends. Because if the government has this right to do this now, why the hell wouldn't we do this every flu season? If, if, our, if, if we're not allowed to have the government dictate how we restrict our own breathing because we got to save every life and prevent anyone from ever getting this as many uh, ways possible— if that's the standard now, I don't see why we would ever end masks. And I also see masks as an incredible uh, uh, indication of a slippery slope. 
that the slippery slope falls right off of masks into to almost anything government wants to do. And it's a libertarian that scares the crap out of me, especially where we're, where the left's the leftists have shown themselves to be fascists over the last several months and are not to be trusted on any of this. And, and so let me tell you what really happened with masks. The mask thing is largely political. Now, look, I mean, I am a very reasonable person, believe it or not. And I'm open to all uh, interpretations. I'm open to all evidence. Again, if you want to wear a mask, that's fine. I'm even open to this idea that, you know what, wearing a mask might not actually stop the virus, but it sends a signal. And, I, and I've said many times, in fact, rather famously in a, in a viral video, I've accused people of virtue signaling over the mask issue. Well, this is a slightly different issue of, of signaling. I get, hey, the mask signals uh, that you're paying homage to the virus, that this is a very serious matter, and it kind of says, hey, stay away. Hey, let's make sure we remember that we got to keep our social distance and wash our hands and all that. You know what? Fine. I think there's some potential value in that. And Dr. Fauci has said that there's some potential value in that, even as his position on masks has dramatically evolved, as has the entire scientific community's uh, position on masks in, uh, dramatically evolved. Not because of any new changes or revelations in science. No, 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 no. Here's what really happened. Science and the medical community and the media and Democrats and liberals never dreamed when this began that masks would be so incredibly popular among their friends and among liberals in general. They never dreamed that. And this is all part of that reverse Midas effect I referred to with regard to Trump. Because Trump was seen as anti-mask, all of a sudden now the left is all in on masks as a signal of their opposition to Trump. And Trump must be wrong. Therefore, masks must be great. And the smoking gun of all of this is an interview that Dr. Fauci did with CBS 60 Minutes back in March. This isn't March. We already know this thing. Now we know it's been here, the virus has, for a couple of months. We know it's coming. At least we should have. Heck, he's the world's foremost expert on infectious diseases. I mean, he should have been, his hair should have been, whatever hair he has, should have been on fire at this point making sure we get ready for this horrendous pandemic that's coming our way if he really is such an expert. And here he is. This is after years. People pretend that somehow the coronavirus is the first time we've ever studied masks. Or, or, I mean, really? Come on, people. Really? It's just flat out ridiculous. This has been an issue for many, many years. People have studied masks. And the science before this began, as I've already mentioned, was at best ambiguous. There have been some studies indicating masks actually are harmful because of numerous reasons, including the touching of the mask, the, whatever the disease is getting stuck in the mask, and your constant exposure to it. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a scientist. But I'm telling you that there is evidence to indicate that, and there's even some data now uh, with the coronavirus, especially here in Los Angeles and California, where our numbers have gone up after mask mandates, that indicate there might be something to that. But here was Dr. Fauci back in March. And I, it's really important for context for, for you to listen to exactly what he's saying and how he is saying it. He is trying hard as he possibly can not to mock people who want to wear masks. He's making it clear there is no need for people to wear masks. Forget about a mask mandate. And he's also making it clear that it's really about making people feel better 
rather than what it's going to do for the general public. And this is Fauci on 60 Minutes back in March. There's a lot of confusion among people and misinformation surrounding face masks. Can you discuss that? The masks are important for someone who's infected to prevent them from infecting someone else. Now, when you see people and look at the films in China and South Korea, whatever, everybody's wearing a mask. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it, because people are listening really no, closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a, a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask and they keep touching their face. And can you get some schmutz sort of staying uh, 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 inside uh, uh, there? Of course, of course. But when you think masks, you should think of healthcare providers needing them and people who are ill. The people who, when you look at the films of foreign countries and you see 85% of the people wearing masks, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not against it. If you want to do it, that's fine. But it can lead to a shortage it, of masks. Exactly. Which that's we're the starting point. It could see. lead to a shortage of masks for the people who really need it. Now, that last statement has been used by Fauci and his defenders to say, no, 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 no. See, that statement has been misinterpreted and taken out of context. In fact, the censorship of this video is so dramatic that when you search for it on YouTube, I'm not making this up, you can do it yourself. When you search for it on YouTube, automatically an article from factcheck.org comes up claiming that Fauci's statement has been taken out of context and that this was really his way of trying to prevent a run on masks for the medical professionals. That's not at all what Fauci was saying there. Fauci was saying, even at the end, even at the end, he was saying, look, the people really need them, and it's not to prevent a virus. Masks are intended for lots of other purposes. But if you're dealing with sick people, if you're sick or if you're a medical professional, okay, fine, wear a mask. That's not the same thing as saying the only reason why I don't want people to wear masks is I don't want there to be a run on masks. He would say that. He would have said that if that's what, it, what his intent was. And by the way, the implication there is he's lying. He's lying about his opinion on masks to prevent people from getting masks. So is he lying then or is he lying now? And by the way, that's a lie that if masks are really so vital, was putting millions of people's lives at risk. Of course, Fauci doesn't really believe that. That's all a lie. That's not what the science was and is. The only thing that changed was the politics. And it's not just Democrat-Republican. When you are an expert and you are a media darling, right, and all the other experts and the media jumps on the idea that masks not only are great, but they should be mandatory and they should be mandated by the government, guess what? you got to get on that train. Because if you don't get on that train... 
you might be left behind and you might not be considered the world's foremost expert anymore and you might not be a media darling anymore and you might not get asked, as Fauci was and will do apparently, to throw out the first pitch when Major League Baseball begins. I told you at the very beginning of this that Dr. Fauci is a fame whore. He is someone who clearly, clearly loves the attention. Never trust a man who suddenly becomes world famous, especially at an older age like that. No, you should not trust him because his motivations are completely screwed up. And and Fauci, I, I think, has shown that prediction to be 100 percent true. The idea that he's throwing out the first pitch is symbolic uh, of this entire phenomenon of him being an attention whore. He has no business throwing out a first pitch of anything, not just because he doesn't deserve it, because frankly, he's screwed up everything. He's been wrong about everything. He's taken every position on everything. But that's just not appropriate given the circumstances of the situation. But it shows what his motivations are. And it shows that he has shifted his position now, and they're lying about what his position was because he doesn't want to lose his status. And so that's what's happened, much like with schools. Everyone has shifted their position because they don't want to be seen as pro-Trump, and they don't want to lose their position in the cool kids club within the liberal elite. And that's what this is really all about. And here we are all now being forced to wear masks for, at best, an ambiguous uh, uh, bottom line, uh, an ambiguous end to all this. I have no idea whether masks help or hurt. I hope they help. Uh, we were told that wearing masks would allow us to reopen. The exact opposite happened here in California. We had a mask mandate, and then a few weeks later, they shut us down further. How'd that work out? That was another lie that they told us. All these lies. Two million are going to die. Just a few weeks to flatten the curve. The protests are fine. Uh, you know, masks suddenly are mandatory. And if we wear them, we're going to be able to reopen. That was a lie. And the whole school situation where they shifted on schools simply because of the politics and not because of the science and not because of the kids. And Trump is impotent to do anything about it. And uh, and that's I, I want to make it very clear. Donald Trump is to blame at the bedrock for all of this because he has created the circumstances that has allowed the left to run wild. It's funny because the Trump campaign put out an ad in the last couple of weeks online that showed Joe Biden as a Trojan horse. You know, the story of the Trojan horse coming into Troy and, and the Greeks you know, fooled the Trojans and uh, they were inside the horse and, and at night they all escaped and they took over Troy and burned down the city, right? And, uh, and in this commercial, uh, you know, Biden is this friendly Trojan horse and inside are all the horrible uh, socialist Democrats like, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi and the like. Well, the irony of that metaphor is one that I've used myself. The problem here is that Trump is the one who opened the gates, and he's the one who has now handed the Greeks hiding in, they're not even hiding anymore, in the Trojan horse, their weapons. And now he's going to sit back, in fact, he is sitting back, and impotently watch while they burn down the city that is the United States of America. So it's Trump that is fundamentally at fault here. And so I, it's very hard for me to see how he has a path 
for re-election, barring some sort of act of God or black swan event. He also can't even do a Fox News Channel interview particularly well, although the, the reviews of his Chris Wallace interview this past weekend, I think, to be as fair as I always am, were a little too rough on Trump. I, I, I was watching on Twitter, you know, oh, my gosh, Trump got killed. Chris Wallace did amazing. Uh, this is this is awesome. And I was expecting this to be just a, a complete calamity from Trump's perspective. And I don't think that it was. I, I thought I think Trump actually did OK in comparison, certainly to what the, the media reporting was and and what the expectations were. However, I do want to play one clip from the interview that uh, Donald Trump did with Chris Wallace, because this is just too good to resist. Uh, Trump, of course, has been desperately latching on to this idea that, well, you know, Joe Biden is just not fit for the presidency because cognitively he is in decline. He, you know, I'm paraphrasing or, you know, the implication is he has dementia. He's losing his marbles. By the way, I think there's something to that. To what degree, I don't know. Part of the problem with Joe Biden is that he has suffered from a uh, lifelong speech impediment, and therefore that sometimes can make things look different than they actually are. But regardless, he's not at the top of his game. He's probably too old to be president. He's never going to serve two full terms. I think that's obvious. And so Trump is trying to make this an issue. And as part of his attempt to make this an issue, he has laughably uh, tried to uh, cite the fact that he passed with flying colors, this cognitive test that proved that he, Donald Trump, is at the top of his game and uh, he is is mentally sharp and far superior to Joe Biden, who he is saying should take the same test. And Chris Wallace (laughs) completely deconstructed this by exposing on Fox News Channel what this test was really all about. And here's what that sounded like uh, on Sunday. Who is more competent? Who's got whose mind is sounder? Biden beats you in that. Well, I tell you what, uh, let's take a test. Let's take a test right now. Let's go down. Joe and I will take a test. Let him take the same test that I took. Incidentally, I took the test, too, when I heard that you passed it. Yeah, how did it's you not do the it? Har- well, it's not the hardest test. No, but the it last... It has a picture, and it says, the last, that, and it's an elephant. No, no, no. You see, that's all misrepresentation. Well, that's what it was on the web. It's all misrepresentation. Because, yes, the first few questions are easy. But I'll bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions. I'll bet you couldn't. They get very hard, the last five questions. Well, one of them was count back from 100 by 7. And let me tell you, you couldn't answer, you couldn't answer many of the questions. I'd get you the test. I'd like to give it. But I guarantee you that Joe Biden could not answer those questions. Okay. Okay? Uh, And I answered all 35 questions correctly. (laughs) The President of the United States is bragging on national television that he answered all 35 questions correctly when one of them is identify an elephant, a picture of an elephant. That is one of the 35 questions. You cannot be serious. And as Chris Wallace indicated, one of the toughest questions is count from 100 backwards seven at a time. Now, you know, I would like to believe that Joe Biden can handle that. I'm not 100 percent sure that Donald Trump can handle that, but I'm going to I'm going to take him in his word that he actually passed the test. But this is how far we have fallen. I mean, we have two people running for president of the United States in an incredibly important time in our history, maybe the most important period of time in our modern history. And neither of them I have any confidence in with regard to a cognitive 
perspective. Neither of them has the mental agility or ability to be leading the United States of America. Neither one. And I, that's probably why uh, one of the many reasons why I will probably almost certainly not be voting for either one. Donald Trump had a shot at my vote over the last four months. He really did. I'm not afraid to admit that. I know it pisses off a lot of people, uh, but uh, I'm an honest guy, and this is a crisis. And I've always said the worst thing about a Trump presidency was what happens if there's a crisis. And it turned out I was 100% right about that. But I, I, I love this country more than I hate Donald Trump. And I wanted him to succeed. And I wanted him to show some balls. And he did nothing. He showed nothing. And uh, he surrendered on masks. He surrendered on the virus. Uh, He's been impotent on schools. Uh, So, you know, he's lost any opportunity to get my vote as if my vote means anything. Uh, But uh, symbolically, uh, I can't vote for either, Uh, especially in, in this situation where the left has completely lost their fucking minds. They're off the rails. They are dangerous. And Trump is completely incompetent and can't do anything to stop them. And I've had a lot of people say to me, well, John, my gosh, isn't Trump our only chance to combat the leftist insanity? Um, I don't know. He can't do anything. I mean, if, it's, if this is happening now while he's in office and has a Republican Senate and all these allegedly Republican judges, what the hell's going to happen in a second term? If he can't stop it now, how's he going to stop it as a lame duck? So I don't see any reason to, to support that. Frankly, I think the only shot we have is, you know, just unfortunately, at this point, the left is going to take over everything. And we got to hope that maybe just maybe they put a break on it themselves because they're afraid of losing the next election. And I don't have a lot of confidence in that. But that's the only path I see at this point. Now, a couple of things before we, we, we uh, end this uh, episode of the podcast. It is amazing what Trump is able to get away with. And we forget about it so quickly. It almost didn't even make the list of things that I mentioned in this podcast. But since the last time we spoke, Donald Trump commuted the sentence of Roger Stone. He commuted the sentence of Roger Stone. Roger Stone, his first political campaign manager, his longtime friend and political advisor, who was convicted on multiple counts of lying to Congress about a very serious matter involving the Trump campaign itself, and he commutes the sentence. You cannot be serious! This coming, of course, uh, on the same uh, type of decision with regard to Michael Flynn. I'm sure it's going to happen with Paul Manafort. And, you know, there's been some people, and it's amazing this is just now not even been an issue because there's so much else going on. But Roger Stone's commutation was as outrageous as it gets, even by Trump standards. And there have been some people who tried to defend this by saying, well, I I heard two defenses. Uh, One was this was an unfair uh, trial because the jury foreman was anti-Trump. What? What? Um, Really? It's just flat out ridiculous. First of all, you you can't have this both ways. You can't tell me that Trump wasn't on trial and then say that because the jury foreman was anti-Trump, this means that the verdicts were illegitimate. That that contradicts itself. But let's be clear. Trump wasn't on trial. Trump is the president of the United States. Are you saying then that only uh, the only trial that could be legitimate would be one that had 12 Trump voters on it? What? What? Come on. Really? We're better than that. No, no, that, that, that's just insane. 
That, that's not the standard. You cannot have only a trial where there are 12 Trump supporters uh, judging Trump sycophants. That's not the way the justice system works. And she was, you know, the jury foreman really doesn't have that much power anyway. It's just one of 12 votes. The, the verdict was, obviously was unanimous. There were, I think, nine counts that he was convicted of. And, and there's, there's no indication that there was anything illegitimate about the verdict itself. And then there's the idea that somehow, well, this pardon isn't that outrageous because other presidents pardoned people for similar circumstances. No, they did not. And here's where they did not. No one has ever done this when they themselves were directly tied to the crime. No, no president in modern times, maybe any times, has ever done that. Pardon somebody, by the way, in an election year? In an election year. This in- indicated to me that Trump must know he's going to lose. He just doesn't care at this point. In an election year, you're going to pardon a friend for crimes committed on behalf of your campaign, which, and it was amazing because Robert Mueller uh, did an op-ed, finally showed that he may have found a testicle. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. He did an op-ed in, uh, I guess it was the Washington Post, decrying the commutation and even implying very strongly that what Roger Stone did was collusion with Russia. That was the only way I, I thought you could interpret what Robert Mueller wrote. Well, if that was the case, then, then why the hell did you lose your balls, Robert Mueller, when it actually mattered? And he, but, it, you know, he's all outraged that this commutation has taken place, that Stone's not going to go to, to prison for what he did. But this was a unique set of circumstances. Not only is he a president's friend, the crimes were committed on behalf of his election with evidence that it was related to colluding with a foreign adversary. I, I, there's no comparison. And this is not defensible. So if you're one of those people who thinks it is, stop it. Use your brains. This is completely unique and yet very virtually completely forgotten already. It's absolutely amazing. Another scandal uh, that it will probably not even last 15 minutes is one I find fascinating because it involves Trump's golf course in Scotland, Turnberry. I have always said from even back when Trump was running for the presidency, that one of the greatest motivations that Donald Trump has in life, in life, is getting the British Open golf tournament to come back to Turnberry. Turnberry used to have the British Open on a fairly regular basis. In fact, some of the most historic British Opens of all time have taken place at Turnberry. But once Trump bought Turnberry, they were taken off of what's called the British Open Rota. The reason why they were taken off the British Open Rota is because the RNA, the Royal and Ancient Golf Club, was smart enough to know they don't want to deal with Donald Trump. Correct. Because they, they know their tournament's going to be all about him. And they don't trust him. And they this is even before he was president. They, they think he's corrupt. He's low class. They don't want anything to do with him. So they took one of their most historic golf courses and they took it out of the rotation for the British Open. And Trump desperately wants that back. Desperately. It's one of the things I think he probably wants most before he dies is to see a British Open at his golf course. And the New York Times reported yesterday 
something that in a rational world we would be talking about for months because it's just so absurd and so outrageous. He lobbied the British government using the power of the United States with our number one ally. He lobbied the British government, according to the New York Times, to get the RNA to allow Turnberry to host a British Open golf tournament. You cannot be serious. I, and you know, I believe the story to be true, largely because I know Trump's motivations and I know the way that he works. I, I don't even know that the British government would have any real leverage uh, over the RNA to do this. There's no indication that it's going to happen. There wasn't even going to be a British Open this year. Uh, and, you know, frankly, at this point, uh, it's what its schedule is. I doubt Trump would live long enough to even see Turnberry, even if it got on the schedule, uh, to host a British Open because he's only, you know, frankly, probably only has a few more years left. Uh, and these things are scheduled many, many years in advance. But that is just so symbolic of what Trump's about. Here he is using his leverage as the president of the United States against our number one ally, not for the people of the United States, not for the betterment of our relationship with the UK, not for the betterment of the world, but for himself, for himself, using that leverage for himself to achieve a personal goal of having a golf tournament played at a golf course he owns. My God, my God, if that doesn't tell you who Donald Trump is, uh, nothing absolutely will. Uh, a couple other real quick points as far as where we are and where we're headed with all this in the bigger picture, with, especially with regard to the virus. I am still uh, stunned that the economy is hanging in uh, as well as it has so far. The stock market especially. Uh, my, my predictions on the stock market have been way off since this whole thing began. Uh, I, I said if, you know, about a month or so ago that I, we're going to look back in months and go, I can't believe the Dow Jones was at 24,000. Well, now it's well over 26,000. I, I do not understand what the stock market is doing, except for the fact that large corporations are going to love the fact that they no longer have much competition and they are all getting all sorts of federal stimulus money. Uh, but that's temporary. In the long run, I don't see how we survive this. Uh, without a massive economic uh, problem for many, many years. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have used the analogy, which I think is correct, that our economy is essentially an airplane that's still in the air that's lost at least one engine and the second engine's not working properly. And we're all looking at it and going, well, it's still in the air. Well, well how's it going to land? How's that going to maintain itself? Especially when we finally run out of gas, which is this printing of money. And they're arguing in Washington right now about, uh, you know, what to do with the second stimulus and unemployment benefits. And Republicans are fighting with each other. I have no idea what the final deal is going to be. Uh, they're, they're kind of in a rock and a hard place in an election year. They're damned if they do, damned if they don't. Uh, but economically, especially when it's clear that we're not opening up anytime soon. I mean, there's not going to be a vaccine for the virus in the next month or two that has any impact. Uh, the fall is going to be a disaster. Schools are not opening. There's not going to be real football. There's not going to be real sports. Uh, now the, the holidays are going to be in, in jeopardy. Uh, th this thing, you know, unemployment benefits are going to stop. Uh, th this is going to be not from necessarily a virus perspective, but from a social, cultural, economic perspective, has all the makings of a disastrous winter. 
And, and that's under the best circumstances that we eventually see a vaccine that hopefully it will stop at some point next year. Now, of course, there are a lot of people believe, and I'm starting to believe, be one of them, that all this changes on November 4th. That if Trump loses, that all of a sudden the left's view of the virus completely changes. All of a sudden everything's going to start opening up. All of our standards are going to change dramatically. Uh, schools will open. Sports will be okay. It'll be a morning in America because essentially what is happening is that we're all being held hostage until Joe Biden defeats John, Donald Trump or anybody beats Donald Trump. We're all being held hostage until Trump loses. I'm skeptical as to whether or not it's when Trump loses or whether it's when Joe Biden is inaugurated. They, they might not be that blatant about it, so it might not be November 4th. It might be late January, early February, but it does feel that way. And I do think that there's some legitimacy to uh, that theory, even though you know it sounds horrible. It is horrible if it's true. And it started off as a joke. It's not a joke. There's some truth to it, if only subconsciously. With that, uh, I'm going to put the uh, mathematical chances. And again, I'm being very, very conservative here because of what happened in 2016, because I was one of those that was wrong when I predicted that Trump would lose. But I'm going to put uh, Trump's chances of winning this election at an all-time low for this podcast at 10%. He does need some sort of major, major development between now and November, whether that's uh, schools opening and doing fantastically and there's being a revolt in places where schools are not open or a vaccine or something of that magnitude to change this and to turn it around. Uh, that doesn't mean he's going to get blown out. I want to make that clear. I'm talking about whether or not he can win. I mean, there's two new polls out from Rasmussen today in Ohio and Pennsylvania, two must almost must win states for Donald Trump. He's losing to Biden in both Ohio and Pennsylvania. And John Kasich, former governor, Republican governor of Ohio, is endorsing Joe Biden. He's going to speak at the Democratic convention. Trump loses Ohio. It's over. It's done. Stick a fork in him. It is completely turn out the lights without Ohio. And he's at 43 percent, according to Rasmussen, which is a pro-Trump poll. Uh, and so that is very, very ominous. For Donald Trump, I might be being optimistic from Trump's perspective to put it at 10%, but that's where we'll leave it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual1pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. Until next week, my name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.